This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and it is number 35 of the series entitled The Form of Sound Words. Most of you who are listening to this recording will know that we have picked out from the scriptures in alphabetical order from the letter A onwards some of the essential words that we should have a knowledge of that are especially associated with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He enjoined upon Timothy and passes it on to us that we should have a form of sound words so that we may have the ABC, as it were, of the truth without confusion. Today we are dealing with the letter T and the subject is time. Now before this recording took place, we read a part of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. So if you will turn to that chapter, there's one or two little notes I would like to pass on as a preface to this study of the word time. Ecclesiastes follows Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and just in that part of the Old Testament, and it begins with a well-known introduction to everything there is a season and a time to every person under heaven. We shall see presently that time sometimes means time as we go by the clock and sometimes means season as we go by the time of year. Uh, unfortunately, in this climate, uh, the end of May seems a little bit like winter. Uh, but of course, that's because we're an odd sort of people and we live right on the edge of Europe. But we'll come back to that presently. There's many things here that we uh, admit must be so. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to gather, a time to cast away and so on. But there's one or two points that perhaps may be wise to just um, pick out. He says, verse 10, I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Now this doesn't refer only to the present creation. It, refu it refers rather that he has made everything beautiful when the right time comes. When the right time comes, there will be a perfect fitness with all that will be then obtaining. And uh, also, he hath set the world in their heart. Now the word world there is the Old Testament word for the age. Uh, strictly speaking, the word world is not a bad translation of the word age, but we're not all etymologists, and we don't always know why a word is spelled as it is. The word world is made up of two parts in English. V-I-R, virile, and it's the word that means a man, and E-L-D, eld, elder, means time or age. So the word world means the time or age of man. But as there's a word cosmos, which has to be used for the word world as well, meaning creation and the visible things around us, it's wise to keep the word ion in the Greek, olum in the Hebrew for age, and cosmos for the word world. That's only just in passing. Also, he hath set the age in their heart. 
so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. The age is a part of time, but there's a beginning about which we know practically very, very little. And there's an end which is foreshadowed, but we have to wait because the scripture says that I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But he has shown it by his Spirit and he's given us anticipations. And so here it is. And then further down, he says, um, verse 14, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Here we have again this word that means the ages. The ages are the uh, periods of time in which God's purpose is unfolded. And this is about it. God has sovereign control of the outworking of the purpose of the ages. Nothing can be put to it. Of course, men try to put things to it. And we're all tempted to try to make a scheme so that we've got a perfect pattern and a picture of the outworking of the ages. But ultimately, God's work, God's purpose will be achieved as he intended. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. That's a good thing to know. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. And then he gives a very strange summary. That which hath been is now. And that which is to be hath already been. That is a suggestion uh, that the scriptures fold themselves back, as it were. It starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It ends with, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. That which hath been is that which shall be. Only, of course, one was without redemptive love, the other with. And God requireth that which is past. Now that verse has been lifted out and used to print on text to sort of frighten people. God requiring a thought of threat, but it isn't. All this is summed up, all this purpose of the ages, all the unfolding of time, for God is seeking that which is past. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then comes disaster, comes darkness, comes death, comes the need of redemption. And the whole purpose of the ages is to finish the circle right back again, only this time, a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. In the beginning, Genesis 1. Then cometh the end, 1 Corinthians 15. There's a beginning and there's an end. And the end doesn't mean when you cut it off and that's a finish. It means a goal, a purpose ultimately achieved. And this strange passage and the whole of Ecclesiastes is to face the fact that there's tremendous amount that's going on in the outworking of this purpose of the ages that God has not described or explained but he leaves it for the faith that he's given us to believe and to hold in spite of all apparent circumstances. I don't think I need ask you to ponder further this book of Ecclesiastes because of the subject demanding a little bit more uh, wider scope. Uh, but we'll now turn to the New Testament. 
And you will see on the chart that you have in front of you that there are two words with which we must become associated. One is chronos, C-H-R-O-N-O-S. The other is kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. Now if you look at Galatians chapter 4, you read chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of, of the time was come, you see, this is dealing in the context with a father having appointed his son to be heir, but while he's a minor, he's under tutors and governors, verse 1, until the time appointed of the father, verse 2. So there is it. When the fullness of the time was come. Now God alone knows why. What we call AD 1 was the fullness of time. But he says so. And if the first week of creation, Genesis 1, foreshadows the days of the ages, that is to say six days or 6,000 years and the 7,000, the millennial kingdom, then it was in the middle, the very middle of that week of God's work that Christ was born. So that may give us some idea that there was a reason and a purpose that was fulfilled. He didn't come in the days of Moses. He didn't come in the days of Abraham. He came at the fullness of time. And we are warned in the scriptures not to, per, as it were, to uh, take the attitude of agitating and praying and arguing with God as to the time. Habakkuk, another rather difficult book to understand, nevertheless is up to date in this, the book of Habakkuk. He said he saw violence and there was no interposition. He prayed and he got no answer. This book of Ecclesiastes says the time to be silent as well as the time to speak. He said, I will stand upon my watch and wait until I know what he's going to say to me. And then he spoke, God spoke. And what he said was this, The vision is yet for an appointed time. Though it tarry, wait for it. Now, that's the human side, though it tarry. But it says, it will not tarry. But what does it mean, though it tarry and it will not tarry? Well, from our point of view, it seems a long time to wait, doesn't it? From God's point of view, thousand years in his sight is but yesterday. We're little children. And if you've ever had little children of your own, and somewhere about the month of February, you dropped a hint that you were going to the seaside in July, oh, don't you wish you'd never said it, because they are we going tomorrow? Well, we are like that. We've got a hint in the Bible that there is a blessed day coming. And we're all of a worry because time seems to be going on and there seems to be no intervention. So we have prayer meetings that last all night as well as all day, thinking we can worry God to change his program, but he won't do it. He'll change us, rather, to fit in with it. So, let's remember uh, this, this passage. Now, here we have, in this fourth verse, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, 
that we might receive the adoption of sons. So, although there was a long wait, in God's estimate, time had now come. You must remember that no event that any one of us can appreciate or enter can possibly take place without the adherence of time and place. Shakespeare's use of words is very wonderful, although he wasn't inspired, and I don't know whether he was a Christian. But he said in connection with one one event, time nor place did then adhere, to adhere. Time and place must adhere. No event can ever be experienced by you and me that doesn't take place sometime, somewhere. So the very first verse of the Bible says sometime and somewhere. In the beginning is time. The heavens and the earth is where. So the Bible immediately limits. In spite of the fact that it ranges so far, it limits us to a period when there was a beginning. It goes on to when there shall come an end and the sphere or the place is heaven and earth. Well, that's big enough, I think, in all conscience until we know as we are known and we're ready for whatever further revelation God may give. Well now, if you will turn the page, you come to Ephesians. And Ephesians 1.10 says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in heaven. And you may think, well, here again is this same expression, the fullness of time. You do notice that it's put in the plural, the fullness of times, So now we've got to differentiate between chronos. You see, chronos is what my watch is indicating. Chronos, time. But if I look in the calendar, I find that it is, is it summer yet? I don't quite know. Uh, But I think it might be. I think summer has started. If it isn't, it's supposed to be. See, kairos, the other word, doesn't mean time, 24 hours a day, it means season, seed time, or harvest time, is kairos. Now this word kairos has to do with convenience, opportunity, something that's fitting. So in the one case, time went on until the time appointed by the Father that his beloved Son should come into the world as a man, and then it goes on to say, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the seasons, now in other contexts, this would be spoken of as the harvest. That's the season. That's not a time, that's a season. Because if you live in this latitude, uh, the harvest would be anywhere from July, August, September. If you lived in Palestine, well, right back at the Passover, in what we call April, they gathered the first fruits of the barley harvest, So, time is one feature, and season is another. So, there are seasons, as well as time. Ecclesiastes says so. So, now, all I can do is to drop the hint that sometimes it will be time, and sometimes it will be season, the fitness. Let's now look at a few passages, shall we? Uh, Let's look at 2 Timothy 1, 9. 2 Timothy 
here the Apostle is writing about the commission that he received and he says who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Well now there's no word for our word world there there's no word for began there that's a very free and easy translation. It's before times of ages. Complicated way of saying it. But the ages span the whole of time. They begin, they end. And before age times. Now this is expressed in another way in Ephesians 1. Before the foundation or overthrow of the world. So that from Genesis 1 verse 2, you start the ages. You start time. And it goes on until the Son delivers a perfect universe to the Father that God may be all in all. That makes me think of an expression that needs care in the book of the Revelation where the angel said, time shall be no more. Well, so far as you and I are concerned, at the present moment, we cannot conceive of, I was going to say, a time when there is no time. We can't conceive of it. And that word doesn't mean time on the clock. It means opportunity. And it is translated in the same book of the Revelation, space. Now, space doesn't mean time. But space to repent means opportunity to repent. And at last, the angel says, the opportunity to repent is over and judgment is about to fall. So that we've now got these two, time and space. They are the absolute minimum for all events. And if you want to work out a definition of time, all philosophers have tried it. I'm only expressing very, very limited understanding. But time, among other things, is the measurement of movement. If you were in a court of law and you stood up as a witness and you said that a motor car was travelling at 50 miles, that wouldn't be witness at all. The magistrate or the judge would say, 50 miles what? Oh, an hour. Because if it was 50 miles a minute or 50 miles a day, don't you see? So time is the measure of movement. But it's much more than that as you will discover when you look in different parts of Scripture. Will you turn back to 1 Timothy 2.6? 1 Timothy 2.6 He says in verse 5, There is one God, or one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now that's due time, that's fitting time, that's opportune time, that's kairos. Not merely the time of the clock, but the time had come when it was the right moment for this great truth to be pronounced, not merely to Israel, but extended to the Gentile, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in its own peculiar seasons. Belongs to that peculiar witness that was entrusted to Paul, whereof I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, 
a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. So there was a fitting time when this emphasis upon the one mediator should go out to the world through the ministry of Paul, the minister to the Gentiles. And then, while we have this group of epistles, turn to Titus, chapter 1, verse 3. Titus, chapter 1, verse 3. It says in verse 2, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due time, manifested his word through the preaching. So again, we've got this expression, before the world began, before the age times, and then in his due times, when the moment came, God broke the silence. We'll add to that, just one other reference, Romans the fifth chapter, verse six. And you will find that it's a profitable study to make sure of the use of these different words before you build too great an edifice. Because if you're building on time, which is chronos, and teaching time, which is kairos, well, then I don't always be in harmony. Um, it says here in Romans 5, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. In due time. A world in sin, a world crying out for a saviour. No answer. The first thousand years go by. No answer. Only type and shadow and prophecy. But no hesitation, no holding back on the part of God when it reaches his point in the programme. So you see, what we've got to be so careful about is not to seek to hurry God and not to get into a panic if we have to wait a little bit. For he says there's no tally. The vision is for an appointed time. Go it tarry, wait for it. For strictly speaking, there's no tarrying with God. And meanwhile, while you're waiting, remember, the just shall live by his faith. That's where justification by faith comes into the Bible in the Old Testament. It's a searching moment when you are wondering if God's forgotten to be gracious and your prayer seems to be unanswered. Just say to yourself, there is no tarrying with God. And it would be impossible even for Almighty God to answer contradictory prayers. In the rabbinical writings that set forth for the Jew, uh, when one son came to the mother because he was an agriculturalist and asked his mother to pray that the rain should come. And the other son, who was a potter, he asked his mother to pray that the rain should be held off. And she said, my son, God will do whatever pleases him. Sometimes it's wise not to pray at all if you're going to badger God to meet your circumstance and forget the other person. So we've got this stress upon time. Well, now we move on to another, and that is the word day. Of course, the word day means, as it means in our case, 24 hours. It sometimes means 12 hours, according to the context. Day and night, well that makes up 24 hours. So one half of it is 12 and the other half is 12. But at the same time, we call it Monday or Tuesday, the whole 24 hours. But it has other meanings beside that. It means a characteristic. 
Now I'd like to show you that by referring to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, first of all. Here we read in the fourth chapter, I think we'll read the first few verses. Chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that the man be found faithful. Now the Apostle Paul was under great criticism, a good deal of opposition, and this was his attitude. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Well, yes, that's mighty independent, isn't it? Paul, he says, I don't judge myself, for I haven't sufficient data. I don't know even to pass an opinion on my own actions. For I know nothing, now our version says, I know nothing by myself, which is a little mis- misleading today. What he really said, I know nothing against myself. But because I don't see that I'm at fault, it doesn't follow that that's what I'm like in the sight of God. I don't know. But he said, yet am I not hereby justified, because I don't know I'm wrong. He that judgeth me is the Lord, not you. He that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. Now you say, where's this word day coming in this? Oh, I forgot. We must go back to verse 3. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or a man's day. The word judgment is the word day. Man's day. And it's not a bad judge, not a bad translation when you know the subject. Because this is in contrast with the Lord's Day. And the, the way in which it's constructed is very much like we have in the book of the Revelation. We'll turn to that in a moment. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says this. Or, oh, I'll go back. Verse 11, another foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. Now a foundation is something upon which you build. If you never build upon it, it's a great heap of stuff that gets in your way. But if it's to be built upon, then it's good. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. The day shall declare it. The day when every man's work shall be assessed. And so, if you will notice, Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6, where we have this word day coming in connection with the assessment of service. He says, Verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that's ordinary time. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
Now that's not really ordinary time. That's the time when our Saviour shall sit upon the judgment seat and you will not be judged according to your sins or for your salvation or the gift of life, but your service will be assessed. Whether you have built upon that one foundation, gold, silver, costly stones, which stand the test of fire, or whether your service will all go up in smoke, you yourself shall be saved, says 1 Corinthians. You yourself. But you may suffer loss, but you'll never be lost. Do differentiate between the two. So here we have the day of Christ. Well, that leads us to a passage which sometimes has been so misunderstood that I think it's worth including Revelation chapter 1. We had at our meeting yesterday, at the end, two very enthusiastic Seventh-day Adventists who were buttonholding everybody they could and telling us how wrong we were not to keep the Sabbath day. Well, now in this Revelation 1.10, we, we have the word Lord's Day, which is taken by a society to tell us how wrong we are not to keep the first day of the week. So between the Seventh-day Adventist and the Lord's Day Observance Society, uh, what do we do about it? The general way in which this verse 10 is translated, it sounds a little bit uh, idiotic to read it like this, I was in the Spirit one Sunday. Did it mean that? Did it mean on the first day of the week, sometime back, John was in the Spirit? Well, I hope you say to me, it all depends upon what you mean by in the Spirit. Friends, it does. If we'd only say to ourselves, before ever I build a teaching on this verse, I'll look and see whether in the Spirit occurs anywhere else in this book. And if it does, it may help me. So shall we look at Revelation chapter 4? After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet, talking with me, and said, Come up hither, I will show thee things which shall be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. Same expression. He was taken to where the throne of God was set up, and it was hereafter. If you will now come to Revelation uh, 20, I think, we'll soon find out. Uh, 21, verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now nobody, as far as I know, believes that the heavenly Jerusalem has already descended from God to the earth. And yet this man in spirit saw it. So when we go back to the first chapter, he says, I was in spirit in the day of the Lord. But you may say to me, oh no, it says the Lord's day. I see. We are living, or well, this chapel is surrounded by insurance companies. And I wish those who would make that distinction would go into one of these insurance companies and say, I want to take out a policy to insure against fire uh, a wooden house. So it's all drawn up. 
and he goes out. Then he comes back and says, oh, excuse me for coming back again. Is there any difference in the policy if instead of calling it a wooden house, I call it a house of wood? They'd look at him, wouldn't they? What's the difference between a wooden house and a house of wood? Only a grammatical distance. difference. What's the difference between the Lord's Day and the Day of the Lord? In the Old Testament, you must say the day of the Lord. You can't say Lord's Day. The Hebrew won't allow it. But in the Greek, you can put it either way as you can in English. So you put it back because the book of the Revelation has particularly to do with the future prophetic day of the Lord. And John says, I was taken in the spirit to a yet future day. It hasn't come yet. And John saw it. Saw what was happening wrote it down in the book according to his instructions. Now our time, time is running out. I want to give you just two more or three references and then we must finish. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.1 is a prophecy which impinges upon our own calling and it's a warning written by the Apostle Paul which tells us that in the last days perilous times shall come. And if you read that chapter down, you'll see what the peril is. Loving self more than loving God. So on. And then we have in uh, Ephesians 3.16, Ephesians 3.16, that expression, redeeming the time. Redeeming is the word ex agorazo. The agora is the marketplace. And this means to go into the marketplace and snap up a bargain for Christ's sake. When I've sometimes seen the photographs in the newspaper of people sitting on little stools, huddled up in overcoats, drinking cups of cocoa all night so that they can get into a sales where the door opens, I think to myself, wouldn't it be fine if we sat up all night and huddled there to redeem and snatch a bargain for Christ's sake? That's the meaning of the word. And finally, 2 Corinthians 6 2. And I think that's as far as time will permit. You see, we are not uh, masters of time yet. The clock ticks on. The lamp shows me my time is running out so far as this meeting is concerned. 2 Corinthians 6.2 For he hath said, I have heard thee in a time accepted. And in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Well, that's been an attempt to lift out from the scriptures uh, the use of this particular expression, time. Time, which means the tick of the clock. Time, which means the recurring seasons. Time, which means a period of character or judgment. And time that has to be used and redeemed for Christ's sake.